Hi, you're listening to Him We Proclaim with John Fonville. And today, a message called The Grace of God Purifies, Part 2. There's quite a laundry list of things in this world we need to be purified from, isn't there? We're going to see what some of those are and the good news behind why Jesus has purification in mind for his church. Let's listen now to this final message in the series called Grace, the Wellspring of All Godliness. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And so Paul gets this first idea of redemption from the first century Roman institution of slavery. Second, and the most important point to note is here, is that redemption is a major Old Testament theme, namely the Exodus. This is where he gets it from. Now, this is where we're going to go back to the Old Testament in just a minute. But Paul, listen carefully, is drawing on the saving act of the Lord when he redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt. Moses and the people sang a song in Exodus 15, verse 5. Listen to what they're saying. You have led in your steadfast love. Steadfast love is where God makes a promise and he never breaks it. This is covenant faithfulness. You have led us in your steadfast love, the people whom you have redeemed, whom you have brought out of slavery in Egypt and freed us. You did this because you made a promise. He made a promise to our forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Abrahamic covenant. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, turn there to the book of Deuteronomy. This is where Paul gets all this from. This is where this comes from. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. Moses reminds Israel that the Lord chose her and redeemed her from Egyptian bondage, not because of her goodness, merit, or righteousness. He says, not because you are greater than any other nations on the face of the earth. In fact, you are perhaps worse than your neighbors. And I chose you anyway and redeemed you anyway. But look at verse 6, chapter 7, verse 6. Moses writes, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth because the Lord loves you. That's it. And it's keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that is the Abrahamic covenant from Genesis 15, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and, listen, and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Paul's redemption language comes from this passage, comes from the Exodus event. And Psalm 130, verse 8, which echoes Titus 2.14, Paul's words there, listen to what the psalmist says. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. Why is the psalmist calling God's people to hope in him? Here's why. For or because with the Lord there is steadfast love, covenant faithfulness. He makes a promise. He never breaks it. Why do you hope in the Lord? Because he's made a promise. With the Lord, there is steadfast love. And with him, there is plentiful redemption. They knew this. Because the Exodus just was screaming to them, God loves you and he has redeemed you. And if you ever forget it, look back to when he brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you. He loves you. Hope in him. He is your savior. And he will redeem Israel from all all his iniquities. This is exactly almost parallel what Paul says in Titus 2.14. You see, what Paul sees in Jesus is this. 
the grace of God that has appeared, which is Jesus, and the whole saving event of his life, death, burial, and resurrection, Paul sees that as the Lord's ultimate fulfillment of the Exodus event. Jesus and his life, death, burial, and resurrection is the Exodus event. Now notice carefully in Titus 2.13. I want you to see this because this is very powerful. Look at Titus chapter 2 verse 13. Paul attributes the exact same title of Yahweh who delivered or redeemed the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt. He attributes the exact same title to Jesus. He calls Jesus our great God and Savior. That is directly quoted from the Old Testament in relation to Yahweh. Jesus is the God of the Exodus event. Now look at verse 14. He not only attributes the whole title of the Old Testament to Jesus, but he also attributes the exact same saving actions of Yahweh from the Old Testament to Jesus. How do I know this? Because he uses the word redemption, which is an act that only God does. Jesus has both the title and the saving actions of the God of the Bible. And before Jesus ascended after his resurrection, he stayed on the earth for 40 days. And you know what he taught for 40 days? He wanted to make sure all of his apostles who would give us the written scriptures knew this point from Luke 24. When you read the Old Testament, it's about me. And then he ascended. And this is what Paul's giving us. And so God redeems Israel from all of his iniquities. Even so, Jesus, by his death on the cross, redeems you and me from all our iniquities, from all our lawlessness. The same saving activity of this redemptive God who makes a promise and never breaks it. And our redemption is like Israel. It's not based on any inherent righteousness that we deserve. Look at Titus chapter 3 verse 5. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. I chose Israel not because they were worthy, not because they had inherent goodness or righteousness. They were worse than their neighbors, but because I loved them and made a promise. Exact same language here in chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us not because of works done by righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Look at verse 7. That being justified by his grace, demerited favor. Jesus, by his self-substitution, paid the ultimate price, the ultimate ransom, by giving himself in our place for us to release or secure our freedom from all lawlessness. That is bondage. And look what Paul says, all lawlessness, the completeness of his work. Look, in contrast to these Old Testament priests who offered over and over and over and never took away sin, Jesus offered himself one time and all of it was taken care of. The completed work of Jesus and his saving death takes away all of our iniquity. Here's the context. Listen. We who were once enslaved to ungodliness and worldly passions, we who were slaves to selfishness, adultery, drunkenness, gluttony, Lying, deception, irreverent behavior, neglect of domestic home life, greedy, thieves, insubordinate to the people who hire us to not carry out the duties they ask us to do. Jesus has set us free from that bondage and controlling power of that. 
He is our great God and Savior. He is Yahweh. He gave himself on the cross as a ransom to pay God the Father the correct price to redeem us from our slavery and our sin. So therefore, here's the effect. We're not slaves of sin. A Christian is not a slave to their sin. You might someday feel like you're a slave to your sin. And you might give in to your sin, because I know you do. But you're not a slave to it. You see, the natural man who you are in Adam, he is a slave to sin. He has no freedom. He is in total moral bondage to his fallen nature. He is unable and unwilling to pursue a godly life. Therefore, Jesus has to come and give himself so that the effect of his redemption is to deliver this old man from the bondage of his sin. Christ redeems us from all lawlessness. The Christian is not a slave, Romans 6, 6. We know that our old self, that's who you are in Adam apart from Christ, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. If you're free, you are free to live godly. You're not a slave. Jesus has set you free. But Christians sometimes allow the worldly passions of their flesh to govern them instead of Christ's atoning redemptive work. And so you have to come back to the gospel because Paul says the very effect of Christ's redemption was to remove all excuses from people who claim to be Christians but indulge in sin. You can't do that. Christ came to redeem you from the penalty and bondage of sin. That's the effect. And so the grace of God redeems us from the power and bondage of sin. That's point number one. Here's the last saving action of God's grace. God's grace, the grace of God, purifies. The grace of God redeems. The grace of God purifies. Look what Paul says. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself for us to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. And listen carefully. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the believer's Savior, verse 11. Jesus is the believer's educator, verses 12 through 13. Jesus is the believer's redeemer, verse 14a. And lastly, Jesus is the believer's purifier, verse 14b. The second intended effect or result of Christ's self-giving sacrifice is purification. Why? Because you see, lawlessness, iniquity, is not only enslaving, it's defiling. It's morally defiling. It leads to moral impurity before God, which among other things, if you're morally impure, you cannot give your life to do good works because everything you do will be morally defiled before God. You have to be not only set free, but cleansed to do a good work. And so Christ's substitutionary atonement has given himself up for us affects not only redemption, but also purification. The gospel, Paul says, liberates and it purifies. The grace of God, Christ's substitutionary death, is giving himself up, is the remedy for my enslavement, and it is the remedy for my defilement before God. 
Christ gave himself up to make us spiritually clean. Those who are morally impure, morally defiled. The moral defilement that Paul has in mind in Titus is the false teacher's idolatry from back in chapter 1. Look at Titus chapter 1. Look at verses 15 and 16. These false teachers were dedicated to commandments or traditions of men. Ritual, religious, outward acts of washings, ritual purity washings. And by that, by their devotion to that, they thought that they were morally clean and pure before God. Because they went through religious, outward, man-made acts to purify their hearts before God. Chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 Paul, though, insists that these idolatrous false teachers who were teaching idolatry to the believers were not pure before God, but rather defiled. And so Paul says to these young, gullible, Cretan believers, if you think by eating unclean foods and going through ritualistic washings and purity rituals that you're going to be clean before God, you're guilty of idolatry and you're morally defiled. In chapter 1, verse 15, you can read it like this. Look at chapter 1, verse 15. To the morally pure, all things are ritually pure. But to the morally defiled and unbelieving, nothing is ritually pure, but both their minds and their consciences are morally defiled. No amount, Paul says, of devotion to man-made commandments, human traditions, religious rituals, religious regulations can lead a man to purity before God. These things are not only ineffective for cleansing worldly passions and ungodliness, but they actually lead to a disregarding of God's law, which is lawlessness, which is what Christ redeemed us from. And they not only lead to lawlessness, but devotion to man-made human religion makes you morally defiled before God. Paul is simply echoing what Jesus taught in Mark chapter 7. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees who were neglecting God's law and going through ritualistic purification ceremonies, washing their hands. And Jesus looked at them and said, you are morally defiled. Paul's point, like Jesus' point, like Ezekiel's point, is food doesn't make you pure. Abstaining from certain types of beverages does not make you pure. Engaging in them doesn't make you defiled. This is what Jesus said to the Pharisees. He says to them in Mark 7, It is not what you do in man-made devotion. It is what is in your heart that defiles the heart. Moral purity comes through the substitutionary death of Jesus who gave himself up for us to cleanse us. First John chapter 1 verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. That is fellowship with God, not each other, but with God. We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The purpose of Christ's cleansing act and redemptive act is twofold. Look what Paul says. Very simple. First, Jesus redeems and he purifies his people from their moral defilement so that he might possess them. Look, 
for himself, a people for his own possession. And this is quite outstanding what Paul says here. It's just amazing good news. The phrase that Paul gives here, a people for his own possession, a people for himself, that comes from Ezekiel 37, 23, at the phrase at the end of that verse, where if God promises, they shall be my people and I will be their God. That is the heart of the covenant of God. When God makes a covenantal promise and he applies it to the New Testament people of God, he's showing you what the heart of his covenantal promise is. It is to bring you to himself so that you belong to him. By Christ's substitutionary death, you have both liberation from your bondage and purification from your defilement so that you can become Christ's own possession, the people of God. Now, you know what the word possession means here? It means way more than just possession. Way is much richer. The idea comes from Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. A costly possession or, listen, a choice treasure. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. You are a people holy set apart to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. In the Septuagint translation, which is the Old Testament translation of the Hebrew, the Septuagint translation is the exact phrase that Paul grabs and puts in Titus 2.14 and applies it to the church, to the people today. We are a people for his treasured possession, just like Israel, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Just as the Lord at the Exodus redeemed the Israelites and brought them to himself and made them his treasured possession, Paul says, so Christ redeems us from all of our lawlessness and purifies us to be his choice treasured possession. Christ gave himself up for us to purify for himself a people who are his rich crown jewel. That's what Paul says here. That's who you are. In Ephesians chapter 1, listen carefully. Paul teaches that the New Testament church people of God are God's choosing. Chapter 1 verse 4. They are his adopted ones. Chapter 1 verse 5. His redeemed ones. Chapter 1 verse 7. His sealed ones. Chapter 1 verse 13. And therefore in chapter 1 verse 18, they are God's rich possession. And Paul says, I pray over and over and over that the Holy Spirit would open up your eyes to see who you are, the crown jewel of God. You are God's Christ inheritance. Rich possession. He has redeemed you from your bondage. He has purified you from your defilement to make you a shining crown jewel. He loves you. And so likewise, the moral virtues in verses 2 through 10 of Titus are the Christian's proper response to Christ's redemption and purification. Look what Paul says. He has redeemed us and purified us to make us his treasured possession to be people who are zealous for good works. You know what this word zealous is? It's the Greek word where you get the word zealot. 
zealots were Jewish nationalists in, in Jesus' day who were political activists who were zealously opposed to Roman intervention in their land. And so Simon the zealot was one of the 12 apostles chosen against Matthew the tax collector whom he wanted to cut his head off rather than be with him as an apostle. So you can imagine Jesus' discipleship moments with Simon and Matthew. Oh, they were always, I'm going to cut his head off and Matthew's, I'm going to take his money. <laughs> Listen, Simon was the zealot chosen by Christ. Paul says the gospel teaches us to be a zealot for good works. Not politically speaking, don't cut people's heads off. Morally speaking, the grace instruction of the Holy Spirit through the gospel produces in me an eagerness to want to do good. That's what the word zealous is, an eagerness to want to do what is good. And what is good in this context? Well, good works, as I said, refers to the believer's moral virtues in, in chapter 2, verses 2 through 10. So let's just quickly, as we finish, go through and look at what Christ's redemption and purification teaches me to be the kind of person I ought to be and want to be. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. Older men in the church, that is any man 40 roughly and above, older men in the church who are instructed by the grace of God, that is Christ's substitutionary self-giving sacrifice for us, his redemption and purification on the cross, that grace of God teaches me to be eager to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. Those are the good works. The grace of God teaches older women, 40 and above in the church, to be eager to be reverent in their behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to much wine, but to teach what is good and to train younger women to be faithful wives and mothers. So older women in the church who are being instructed by the grace of God continually in their hearts, this is the kind of person they're going to be. This is the kind of person they're going to be eagerly wanting to be. Younger women, look at chapter 2, verse 5. Younger women will be instructed by the grace of God because of Christ's redemption and purification to be self-controlled. Pure, ensure that their homes are not neglected, kind, and sexually faithful to their own husbands. This is what the gospel produces. Young men, that is 40 and below, young men in the church, by the gospel, will be taught to be self-controlled. He gives them one virtue that covers their whole life. Because if there's one thing that's true about young men, is they need self-control in all things. And then in verses 7 through 8, he uses Titus to show what an exemplary life looks like of self-control, of godliness. And then verses 9 through 10, the gospel has every single thing to do with you as an employee to your employer. Transforms your vocation at work. Verses 9 through 10, the gospel will teach Christian employees to be eager to give conscientious and faithful daily service to their employers. And so in short, the gospel, Paul says, will produce a rightly ordered church that adorns rather than mars the reputation of the gospel. That's his whole point in this whole chapter.
the whole emphasis of Christ's salvation, his work, his redeeming work, who has brought salvation, who has brought redemption, who has brought purification, who has appeared to us in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. The whole point of that is to liberate me from my bondage so I can live it and to purify me from my defilement so that I can actually do it and have good works in my life that are not defiled before God. This is the whole purpose of the gospel. And so as we reflect on the education of grace, let us remember that the gospel, chapter 1, verse 1 in Titus, the gospel is the truth which accords with godliness. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says the gospel, he calls it the mystery of godliness. Why? Because the world cannot understand how this act can actually make us what we're required to be without going through behavioral transformation. This is power. He has appeared with saving power to liberate and to purify, to make me zealous to want to be what he's called me to be. That is grace. Thanks, John. That's a message called The Grace of God Purifies, Part 2. More from John Fonville coming up soon. The heart of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. With each message, our prayer is you would hear, believe, and enjoy the gospel in your life. If you want to re-listen to or share any of these messages, you can find our smartphone app or locate our podcast by searching for Dr. John Fonville or Him We Proclaim. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to learn more about his local church in Jacksonville, Florida, you can visit ParamountChurch.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.